Good morning. Um, my name is Bob Vogelar. I uh, have gone here since, I think, 2007 when I started. I get the privilege of being a part of the teaching team, so thank you for uh, allowing me to come up here and talk to you about the passage today. If you want to kind of open up your Bible to Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, and just put your thumb there. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. I want to start by um, talking to you about something that I, I, I kind of enjoy doing. Um, I like looking through old yearbooks. I don't know if, if anybody else likes that, looking through old photographs maybe, but I like doing that. I brought this morning um, my yearbook from one of the years when I was at the University of Missouri. It's the Savitar, uh, so the 1990 yearbook. And then I uh, brought one that um, actually is the 1922 uh, Savitar. So uh, the reason I brought these is that um, I like looking, I like to see how things change over in Missouri. I, I obviously uh, am intimate with the buildings and the traditions and all those things, and I like to see how things change over time. There are a lot of uh, differences, but a lot of similarities. So, you know, the columns, if you're familiar with the University of Missouri, the columns were there in 1922. In fact, they, they adorned the cover of the book, uh, one of the, I think, the second most photographed uh, site in the state of Missouri, should be first. Um, was there. Uh, some of the other things that are the same in both of these yearbooks, uh, for whatever reason, just coincidentally in 1922 and in 1990, um, the University of Missouri football program had more wins than the University of Kansas. So uh, coincidental, probably. Uh, actually, I picked these because, believe it or not, some of the yearbooks I have actually, uh, Missouri lost one game, you know, two games, three games, nine games, and one of them was the uh, University of Kansas, so quite a rivalry there. But one of the things that, um, that is interesting, the point of, of sharing this, is that the main difference between these two yearbooks is that uh, in this one, the 1922 one, every person, every single one of them in this book is dead. Not one is alive. And there's a website you can go to to actually research, you know, the years that, that these students were born to be uh, uh, freshmen through seniors. You can look up who on planet Earth is still alive. And, and the freshman class for 1922, there's four people on the planet that are still alive. And none of the four went to the University of Missouri, so I could say that. Uh, in fact, only, actually none of them are from America. They're all from other countries. So the reason I say that is that the... When I look through these pictures, I see in the eyes of these people photographed, and the, especially in the social photographs, the fun that they're having, I see the same exuberance and optimism and zeal for life that was in my yearbook as well. Maybe just the hair wasn't as big. Um, and the reality is that because every one of these people have passed away, that for every one of these students, uh, we'll start with the ones who did have their faith in Christ, they have no more opportunity to partner with the Holy Spirit to reach lost people. That window's closed for them. Now they're in a better place. They're in uh, the fellowship with uh, our Heavenly Father forever. But their window of time to really reach um, their family members, their neighbors, their friends is passed. And then for those in here who have passed away apart from Christ, they have no more time uh, left to, to change the course of their eternity. That's fixed. Uh, they only have a past. Um, many of the people in here and in your books today, and you all right here in this room, uh, have a past, but you also have a present right now and a future, right, for some period of time. And that's the main unique difference between these two populations of individual, 
individuals. Paul, in this passage, is calling all of Christ's followers to wake up and choose to live life differently with whatever time they have left. So go ahead and open up now to Romans 13, 11 through 14. And let's read along. This is Paul talking, and I'll be reading from the NIV. You may have a different translation, but it starts with, and do this, and this is the pronoun for the section of verses just right before, uh, which is to pay back the continuing debt to love others genuinely and deeply. That's the this. So he says, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's call to the believers in Rome and his call through the Spirit to all of us today who follow Christ is for us to make the right choice between the competing interests of the stuff of this earth and the things of eternal value with regard to our salvation. This is a common theme in many of Paul's letters. In fact, it's a common theme in many of the apostles' letters in the New Testament. A group of guys, a couple of guys and I get together on Wednesday mornings and we're, we read different books. And right now we're reading a book by Jerry Bridges and the book is called The Pursuit of Holiness. And in that book, Jerry Bridges writes this. He said, God has called every Christian to a holy life. There is no exceptions to this call. Every Christian of every nation is called to be holy. Mr. Bridges gets the backing to make this claim from passages like this one we're looking at today. Romans 13, 11 through 14 is a call to holy living, not just to the believers in the church, churches in Rome, but to all believers today. So as I studied for this passage, uh, for this message today, three observations emerged from the text. First, that Paul is intentional about what should motivate our pursuit of holiness. Second, that Paul's urgency to pursue holiness is actually to tap into the believer's first love, not their first fear. And the third theme to emerge is that Paul's use of the clothing analogy speaks to our responsibility to pursue holiness. Now, before jumping into the the first observation, I need to lay a little foundation regarding holiness. Specifically, there are three theological principles or concepts that if we don't unpack at least a little bit, it could cause us to risk drifting to legalism when we read a passage like this, that there's a list of do's and don'ts I've got to keep track of and I've got to stay on top of. So these three theological terms are justification, sanctification, and glorification. They're big words. Um, and I'm going to probably not do full justice in trying to unpack them, but I want to spend a little bit of time trying to simplify what these concepts really mean. Um, I'm going through another book study. Actually, this one's through Right Now Media. If you do any of the videos, they have books connected to them, but there's a group of uh, men that I get together with on Friday mornings where we're going through a Chip Ingram book, and the video's on Right Now Media, and the book is called The Real God. And the last chapter that we just finished about a week ago, believe it or not, is called The Holiness of God. 
And Chip Ingram unpacks these three terms so well, I, I want to spend some time talking about them with you this morning. So I've placed them on the following timeline. He doesn't do that, but I think it simplifies it even further to put it on a, a timeline to help us better understand it. So on this timeline, I've got uh, our birth, right, all of us. I think I got all of our birth. We're all born, right? So that's on the timeline, covers all of us. Now, what's on the other side of the timeline doesn't cover us yet today. It covers other people, but it doesn't cover us yet today. And this is that day at some point in the future when we will either pass over from death to life or Christ will return. Okay? So this is the bookend of every one of our lives. Okay? Um, hopefully, we have a lot of time between today and that back end of this timeline. Okay? Now... Some of us in, uh, in this room have put our faith in Christ, um, specifically our faith in the fact that he has provided a sufficient work on our behalf to reconcile a broken relationship that we can't reconcile with our Heavenly Father. And so if you have done that, then there's this marker on your timeline as well, that at some point in your journey uh, through life, you have made a decision to put your faith in Christ, Okay. For me, that was 30 years ago last September, so it was a while ago. It's on kind of the front end of that. Um, Chip Ingram says that justification, that first term, occurs the moment you take Jesus at his word in John 5, 24. That verse says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. As a result, Christ, who is perfectly holy, stands in a gap that we can't close. We're incapable of bridging. And so Chip Ingram says, in the moment that you believe this about Christ, you have been given positional holiness. And that just means that when the day comes that we have a standing before a holy God, our position in front of that holy God exists because of what Christ did, not because of what we did. We didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, but that positional holiness is given to us by God. Christ paid the penalty of eternal separation from God to make this a reality for everyone who believes it. Chip Ingram goes on to say that glorification, the next end, comes when we cross over from death to life, that in that moment, we who believe have been given permanent holiness. Holiness with God for all eternity, again, made possible solely because God is a promise keeper. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says that he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Paul is confident that God will keep his promise to carry us on to completion or permanent holiness. This eventual permanence of our holiness before our perfect Father occurs solely because He has guaranteed it to come to fruition. So because of these two realities, all entirely made possible by God alone, according to His sovereignty, and not at all according to what we deserve or what we could earn, we get to live in the present progressive holiness, that's sanctification, this is the window of time where we live in response to the lavish love that God has given to us by both positional and permanent holiness. God's gift of positional and permanent holiness means we get to now live during a time of confidence to stand before a holy God. We get to live our days showing God and the world just what we think of this gift given to us 
to make us positionally holy in his sight and the guarantee that we will be made permanently holy by God's doing alone. In fact, it's framing our window of progressive holiness in this way that helps us better understand my first observation from the text, and that being that Paul's intention in this section of Scripture. What is his intention? Because Paul is intentional about what should motivate our pursuit of holiness. In verse 12, if you look at verse 12, the NIV says, so let us. I think ESV says, so then let us. Some versions might say, therefore. When you see these kind of trigger words, what, what they're really telling you is that what is about to be said is being said because of what just preceded it. So another way to, to talk about when he says, so let us in verse 12, put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What he's saying is considering what I've just shared with you about this permanent and positional holiness, this lavish gift of God, considering the reality of that, considering the reality that Christ is going to be returning soon, certainly sooner now than ever, considering that reality, we should live differently. We shouldn't live the way we lived before. We should wake up and live with a different set of priorities. Priorities that set aside external sins and internal sins and exchange them for priorities that respond appropriately to the positional and permanent holiness given to us by God. And that response again occurs in the window of our progressive holiness. Chip Ingram uses Isaiah 6 to illustrate all three of these theological terms in the same supernatural event. So flip with me to Isaiah 6. You'll see this concept of positional and permanent holiness and how it compels our progressive holiness in the life of Isaiah. So this is Isaiah talking, Isaiah 6, uh, verses 1 through 8. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, talking here, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Then one of the seraphim flew with me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah, who was by all accounts from Scripture, one of the most righteous people to ever live, right? Relatively speaking, him comparison to other people at the time. But when it came to this experience of being in the actual presence of a holy king, the Lord Almighty, he cried out, woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. At this moment, Isaiah standing before God was entirely on his own earned righteousness. And in that condition, he responded in the only appropriate way. Woe to me. I am ruined. Folks, that's how holy God is. It is apparent immediately that we do not measure up. 
And in no way, shape, or form is our standing defined by the standing of anybody else around us. It is our own earned righteousness, and our only response is woe to me. But after his sin was atoned for, do you notice what changed with Isaiah? After his sin was atoned for, everything changed. No longer was he magnanimously aware of his shortcomings. No longer was he crying out in woe. No longer was he proclaiming his ruin. Instead, after atonement, when God asked for someone to go on his behalf to the people, Isaiah was compelled to say, here am I, send me. Isaiah's attitude and action in response to atonement is significantly different than before atonement. This change in attitude and action is solely due to the positional and permanent holiness made possible by God alone. Isaiah immediately recognized that he didn't earn this, that he didn't deserve this, and as a result, he was compelled to live out the rest of his days in obedience to God. Here am I, send me. The reality of God's provision of positional holiness in Christ alone and our future permanent holiness in it on God's guarantee alone should naturally compel us to progressive holiness in response. Now, I want to be clear here. Our progressive holiness, sanctification, does nothing to change God's provision of positional holiness, justification. And it does nothing to influence God's future permanent holiness, glorification. We are fully justified by our faith in the sufficiency of Christ to atone for our sins in the presence of our holy heavenly Father. And God alone is sovereign to guarantee our permanent holiness. This assurance is found all throughout Scripture, but probably most succinctly in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If we're not clear on this, we might think that Romans 13, 11 through 14 was written to push Christ followers. And if that's the case, pharisaical life having to measure up. And if that's the case, folks, we will try like crazy to measure up only to discover when it's our turn to stand before a holy God that we don't measure up. It is what Christ did on the cross on our behalf that is the only thing that can give us standing before God. The beautiful reality of that is we can't thwart that. Hallelujah. John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. He doesn't say we collaboratively partner if you keep up your end of the bargain. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. This leads me right into my second observation, that Paul's urgency is to tap into the believer's first love, not their first fear. 
When Paul says the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed and that the night is nearly over, he's not warning them that a judgment will come if they get caught off guard. Rather, he says these things as someone who is obsessed with Christ, who's madly in love with Jesus. And he knows better than any of the people who would be reading his letter that there is great joy that is accompanied by pursuing a relationship with Christ. He knew that as the believers in Rome devoted themselves to knowing Christ, they, like he, would discover the joy of falling in love with the Savior. The byproduct of that joy is a genuine and abiding desire to behave decently, to not engage in outward sins, to depart from inward sins, that these are easy trade-offs in comparison to knowing Christ. After all, the the more Paul walked with Christ, the more compelled he was. We see this in Philippians 3, 10, and 11. Philippians 3, 10, and 11, when he said that he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The demonstration of Christ's love would cause every one of Paul's old priorities to be considered rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus his Lord for whose sake he had lost all things. Francis Chan wrote a book called Crazy Love and he said this about a person madly in love with Christ. He said they're obsessed. He wrote, have you ever met someone who was utterly and desperately in love with Jesus? And then he says, I have. My wife's grandma, Clara. Grandma Clara acted toward God the way we act toward people we are madly in love with. When you are truly in love, Chan said, you go to great lengths to be with the one you love. You'll drive for hours to be together, even if it's only for a short while. You don't mind staying up late to talk, and when you're apart from each other, it's painful, even miserable. He or she is all you think about and you jump at any chance to be together. Then Chan went on to write that believers should be this way about Christ, that we should have such a clear picture of the lavish love of God through Christ that we become compelled by this love to live an obsessed life for Christ. Then he went on to share the story about his grandma Clara. He said, I once attended a play with my wife and some other relatives, including grandma Clara. During intermission, I leaned over and I asked her what she thought of the play. And she said, oh, honey, I really don't want to be here right now. When I asked why, she replied, I just don't know if this is where I want to be when Christ returns. I'd rather be helping someone or on my knees praying. I don't want him to return and find me sitting in a theater. And Chan went on to write that he was shocked by her answer. Yes, we're called to keep watch. Matthew 24, 42 says that. But it's strange to see someone who takes this command and so many others seriously. In fact, it's more than strange. He said it's convicting. His, his wife's grandma, Clara, did not say that because she feared what would happen to her if she got caught in a theater. She said that because she was so madly in love with Christ that she wanted to only be engaged in the work that would glorify him in response to what he did for her. 
You see, when you have a relationship with someone, there is joy in being caught doing the right thing. With my wife's permission, I'm going to share a story that actually predates even our dating relationship. There was a situation that happened uh, between her and I before we started dating. This was back when I was at Mizzou. I was an RA, and I volunteered to work over the Christmas break. Uh, They had to shut down all the dorms, but they'd keep one open for international students because they needed a place to stay. And they needed somebody, one of the RAs across campus, to staff that. So I volunteered to work the front desk for the international students. One day after the New New Year had started, almost toward the end of break, Charlotte decided to surprise me on her way back from Kansas City to Washington University in St. Louis, where she was a graduate student. She knew I was there, but she didn't know where to find me. There's a lot of dorms on campus, and she didn't know which one was the one that was open. But after a few stops and a few conversations, she got pointed in the right direction. I wasn't expecting her. I had no idea she was coming. In fact, I remember doing a double take when she came around the corner. It's kind of one of those mirages. Am I I really seeing her there? Um, But when she came around the corner and I saw her, guess what she caught me doing? She caught me writing a letter to her. I didn't write a lot of letters to her. In fact, uh, she and I kept the letters that we wrote back and forth during this window, probably about five, six, seven years of writing letters back and forth. And it's almost embarrassing the size of the notebook that contains all of her letters and the the size of the notebook necessary to contain all of mine. I just wasn't a, a letter writer, but she caught me writing a letter to her. Had my Bible open, I was writing to her about what God was doing in my life through my time in the Word. We weren't even dating at the time. We were just friends. But I did have a crush on her. So for her to catch me writing a letter to her was definitely in the plus category for me. When Paul calls us to pursue holiness because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, he is writing this because there is a kind of wonderful joy that comes from being caught doing the right things. In Crazy Love, Francis Chan reiterates, he says, a person who is obsessed thinks about heaven frequently. Obsessed people, he says, orient their life around eternity. They are not fixed only on what is here in front of them. That's what being madly in love with Christ does. When Paul wrote these words in Romans, he knew that an obedient life flows naturally from a deep and abiding love. And that a legalistic life can never create a deep and abiding love. He was a Pharisee. He knew what a legalistic life produced. And Jesus knew that too. In John 14, 15, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will obey what I command. The formula is simple. Rather than chasing after a litany of things I'm supposed to do and a litany of things I'm supposed to avoid, I only have to be about one thing. You see, we obey because we love. We don't love because we obey. And if you don't believe me, consider this. Consider how much, I'm sure most of you are law-abiding citizens. You try to wear your seatbelt, drive within the speed limit, obey the laws. You don't steal. You certainly don't um, murder. You're a law-abiding citizen. But let me ask you, what has all of your law-abiding lifestyle done to cause you to fall in love with the politicians who made those laws? Enough said. My third observation is that Paul's use of the clothing analogy speaks to our responsibility to pursue holiness. 
Paul often talks about putting on the new self in Christ. The meaning of this reference is that we are to allow Christ to permeate who we are. There's an exchange. He is now becoming our reality. You see, when people see the clothes we wear, they rightfully learn a lot about our identity, right? Our priorities, our way of viewing the world around us. When people see us, oftentimes their first impression comes from our appearance and what we're wearing. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For the Apostle Paul, being clothed with Christ meant that people no longer saw him. They only saw the life of faith he lived in Christ. One of reckless abandon is a person obsessed with knowing Christ and making him known. But probably the most important aspect of Paul's statement to clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ is that it is our responsibility to clothe ourselves. I think because during this window of sanctification, this progressive holiness, we know the Holy Spirit lives in us, right? We are living every day in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that can cause us to think that some of the responsibility of clothing us is Christ's, is the the Spirit who's living in us. But it isn't. It is our responsibility to clothe ourselves. I never just expect that somehow the clothes I'm going to wear on any given day will fly out of the closet and find their way on my body. I've put them there. It's my responsibility to clothe myself. And what I choose to clothe clothe myself with is also entirely done by my conscious choosing. The clothing doesn't accidentally or providentially appear in my closet. I choose what to buy. I pass by some clothing styles and I gravitate to other clothing styles, but I am responsible for making those decisions. Yet I think sometimes we live our lives as if we're waiting around for God's help to put on a holy pursuit. And if it's not happening, this is somehow God's shared responsibility. That if he would only take this or that desire away from me and replace it with the right desire of his, this progressive holiness thing would be much easier. Jerry Bridges, again in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, wrote, I once discussed a particular sin problem with a person who said, I've been praying that God would motivate me to stop. Motivate him to stop. What this person was saying in effect was that God had not done enough. He goes on to write, there is no point in praying for victory over temptation if we are not willing to make a commitment to say no to it. We must face the fact that we have a personal responsibility for our walk of holiness. So where are you in response to a passage like this? Are you one who, who maybe have, you're, you've drifted asleep a little bit? Someone who's going through the motions? I mean, I confess I do. If I'm not challenged to recalibrate these truths deep into who I am, I coast. It's human nature. The demands of life that are placed on us cause us to drag our eyes from the eternity down to the temporary all the time. And that does lull us into sleep. Maybe you feel you've been drifting away from God for quite a while. Maybe you feel that returning to him now is something that you just need to keep putting off because it's a hard conversation to have or you just don't know how. Paul said in Galatians 5.16, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The path back isn't by figuring out how to way back is simply to way to holiness, how to earn your way back into the presence of God. 
The way back is simply to recognize that returning to Christ is the way to start. By focusing on a better relationship with Christ first, you allow your love for him to change what you desire. Then Paul says for a believer to walk in the spirit, he means be in intimate fellowship with God's spirit who lives in you. Connect with God through his word, through prayer, through the fellowship of other godly men or women. Seek him first. And that probably starts just by confessing your desire to return to him. Remind yourself that that the security and certainty you have for all eternity is by faith in Christ and it's not by your ability to measure up. That God has given you positional holiness when Christ justified you by his death and resurrection and God has guaranteed permanent holiness when he carries on to completion the work he began in you. Let this truth penetrate deep into our hearts. God is good and his love endures forever. You don't need to wonder if his salvation is guaranteed forever. Scripture confirms it. Live in response to that lavish love. You may be familiar with this singer and songwriter, Lauren Daigle. She's a fairly popular singer right now. She has a song out about anchoring down to the truth of God's character and claiming his promise even in the midst of sin that separates us from him. She sings, I am guilty, ashamed of what I've done, what I've become. These hands are dirty. I dare not lift them up to the Holy One. And then she says, you plead my cause. You right my wrongs. You break my chains. You overcome. You gave your life to give me mine. You say that I am free. How can it be? It does seem unbelievable. It just doesn't make sense. We live in a world where every relationship is conditional and this one is not. It is never too late to lift your voice to God. Repenting of whatever it is that's causing you to drift away from intimate fellowship with him. God longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. Through Christ, he has removed your transgressions as far as the east is to the west. He has marked you with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance to the praise of his glory. Just know that the day of your salvation is nearer now than when that you I am absolutely confident that a day is coming that your yearbook, wherever it is, is going to have inside it every person, including you, dead. Don't wait. Awake from your slumber. Turn to the one who longs to walk intimately with you. We're going to have the worship team sing a song, and as they sing it, It'll be really tempting to just sing these words. Don't. Stand up and pray these words. Make this your crying out to God to say, search me, know me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time in it. And I thank you that your lavish love is unconditional. 
And it does drive us into a desire to know you more and to please you. As we sing this song, Father, I just pray it as a prayer for all of our hearts to come back to you awake, ready to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.